All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We start today with the ban on in-person religious celebrations during the COVID-19 pandemic. More churches are pushing back now on the temporary ban on in-person religious gatherings. On Sunday, at least three churches in the Fraser Valley defied the ban and held in-person services. At least one congregation was fined $2,300 for doing that. Now some churches in the Valley say several more churches could open their doors this Sunday. All right, let's talk about this issue now with my guest. Very pleased to welcome her, Melissa Skelton. She is the Anglican Archbishop for the Diocese of New Westminster, and I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, Mike. I, I believe now, you correct me, but I believe the New Westminster Diocese covers a lot of Metro Vancouver, is that correct? It's not it, just in New West. Oh, that's correct. So, yeah. uh, yes, it's it's a little misleading. It's uh, yeah. We're the Diocese of New Westminster, but we are 66 parishes and uh, three faith communities in the Vancouver metro area, in right. the Fraser Valley, Sunshine Coast, so all the lower mainland, and, and so it's quite, quite a few churches. And we, okay. are, we do have churches in the areas you just mentioned. Right, okay, that's a, that's a large diocese. Now, what is the position of the, uh, the Anglican Church on this issue? Are you abiding by the health order? We are, are yeah. wholeheartedly abiding by the health order because we believe it's part of our mission to uh, protect life, to preserve life, and to support uh, the very good work of the provincial health officer and, and her staff as she does her very best uh, to keep us updated on what is going on in our diocese in terms of, and in the whole region and the province, in fact, in terms of, the, of COVID-19, and uh, work with us on what we believe together is the safest way to proceed. What has been the impact on on churchgoers and uh, individual churches? And I mean, this is difficult, though, right? Tough. For it people. is difficult. I mean, yeah. uh, and it's been difficult from the beginning uh, when we were in a similar place before, because people in church communities uh, desire, yearn to gather, to pray, to worship, to reach out to, together in their communities, and and to um, you know do do things for their more vulnerable neighbors, and so. We've had to adapt and to be flexible about the way we do it. And I've been amazed, uh, even as people desire to physically gather together, the creativity of our clergy and lay leaders who have figured out different ways to do things so that the church doesn't stop, just we've had to change some of the ways we do it. Speaking to Archbishop Melissa Skelton from the Anglican Church, what do you think about some of the the churches we've seen, notably in the Fraser Valley, defying the order and opening? I guess these are largely evangelical churches. Uh, what do you think of them defying that order? Well, I'm very saddened and alarmed because, of course, the action of one church or one individual affects us all. And uh, there's no more, we are all individuals and... <laughs> and are in it by ourselves. This, what this pandemic has certainly taught us is that we are deeply interconnected and the actions of everyone affect everyone else. So I'm very sad that they felt that they should do this. And, and I'm also sad for the provincial health officer and her staff, you know, who are, who are really doing their best and, and re- seek to support them. Yeah, some of the churches, some of the churches that are defying the order say that they, they feel that they're being singled out or, or that's not fair, that you can still go to a bar, you can go to a busy Walmart, but you can't go to a church. I mean, do you think that the order in, the, in that respect is uh, discriminatory in any way? 
Well, you know, I, I try not to get into that. Uh, I try to focus on what we can do and what our mission as a church, you know, as, a, as an Anglican church and as the Anglican church in this area is, and it's about the protection of life. It's about uh, actually doing things that cost us a little bit in order to protect life of other people, not only our own parishioners, but, but people in the community. Right. So. Uh, it's a it's a big job uh, assisting the churches to do that and and encouraging them to keep doing it and that's what I try to focus on. I don't focus on our and what's happening at liquor stores. <laughs> yeah, um, when you say there's a cost, I'm 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 sure there is a cost, including maybe a financial one if you're not holding services and not and not passing yep. the collection plate, right? Yep. Well, and I think giving up things you love to do is costly. So there's yeah. an emotional and psychological cost and. Uh, particularly for people who live on their own. It's difficult, even though we have Zoom and we have virtual worship. There is a cost uh, to to doing the things that we know are safe. And yes, some of the churches uh, have suffered financial costs, and we are fortunate enough in our broader diocese to have been able to uh, Hmm. give uh, financially to support those parishes that have struggled. Right. There's there's talk of a court case or a, a charter challenge to a, against this health order, but I've had a lot of listeners who our listeners are really interested in this topic, and I, I've received a lot of emails and messages about it. Let me read you. Um, yeah. This is a passage I'm about what they're saying. Yeah. Well, yeah. This is one listener sent me this. Now, this is a passage from the New Testament, which I I think is interesting uh, for your reaction to the Gospel of Mark. So it says Jesus said that for for wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Yes. Would you would you interpret that to mean? I guess some people interpret that to mean that a church building or like a physical brick and mortar church is not necessarily required to worship and commune with God. I'll, I'll, I'll defer to your superior expertise on that. Like, is that how <laughs> oh, you would you, interpret? <laughs> okay. How would you interpret that? Well, I, I interpret that uh, to mean that. When Christian people, and I would say people of of other faiths too, this is the one I know about. When they come together, that that there is something of a uh, that the spirit is is uh, works among them and with them. It doesn't have to do with buildings, right. and and some would say, you know, we're doing our very best for two or three to come together. Uh, maybe not physically, but but using the uh, the blessing uh, of the technologies we've been given, and that. And that 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 spirit um, is important to to foster and maintain in the ways we can, and at the same time while being safe. Thank you for coming on today to talk about this. I appreciate it a lot. Oh, Mike, I, I really really enjoyed speaking with you. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the federal government's fall economic statement. Long awaited, it was introduced by Finance Minister Christian Freeland. On Monday, it's a fiscal strategy for coping with the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and a plan going forward as well. So the fiscal update projects a very large deficit, not a surprise. $381 billion is the deficit. It could climb higher. Meanwhile, the Liberal government says they're preparing to spend even more money even when the the pandemic is over. They will spend up to $100 billion to kickstart the economy when the health crisis is over. Uh, that's a lot of money. Have a listen to this here now. This is Christy Freeland, the federal finance minister. We put that plan out there because we know that even after we have the virus under control, we are still going to have an economy 
that needs some help to fire at its full potential. And, you know, we have recovered a lot since the spring. Nearly 80% of jobs lost have been recovered. And that recovery might make us not fully realize just how bad the economic hit has been. Okay, Christia Freeland there, the federal finance minister, talking about her long-awaited fiscal update. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Melanie Jolie. She is the federal minister of economic development, and I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Thank you for coming on. It's a pleasure, Mike. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for doing this. So what, what do you want to highlight in this plan specifically for people in, in our province in British Columbia? What's, it, what's in there for British Columbians? Mm-hmm. So first and foremost, uh, we've been there since the beginning of the pandemic to help people that have lost their jobs. A lot of people in British Columbia at the beginning of the pandemic lost their job because they're in sectors such as the tourism sector, hospitality and hard hit sectors. And, uh, and a lot of them have recovered their jobs, but some have not. And so we've been there to help businesses go through this uh, with different measures, Mike, such as the wage subsidy. That's keeping businesses uh, afloat and keeping them to, to, to keep their employees. So now the wage subsidy is up to 75% and up till next summer. We're there also with uh, support uh, through a regional development agencies and for British Columbia, well, we recognize that the West is not all the same. The prairies have their own reality. British Columbia has its own reality. And that's why we're coming up with a new regional development agency only for British Columbia. That's a first in our history as a country. Okay, very interesting. And the tourism sector is very important here in British Columbia, of course. And the reaction to the help in the, in the tourism sector... I kind of divided. I mean, I hear a lot of tourism uh, industry people saying they're they're grateful for the help that was included in the fiscal update, but but others saying they wish there had been more. Notably, the airline industries. But w- what's in there for tourism? Such an important issue mm-hmm. here in BC. So I've talked about the wage subsidy. The other issue we have is clearly a lot of businesses, uh, like such as restaurants, for example, or hotels have been going through difficult times and they have still fixed costs to pay their rent, uh, their insurance, their property and and school taxes. So we came up with a new subsidy, which is the rent subsidy. And now for businesses, for business owners that are listening to us right now, please call the Canada Revenue Agency, the CRA, and you can have access to support up to 65% of all your fixed costs. Uh, and if you're in a lockdown region, in a red region where you have to close, it's up to 90% of all the fixed costs. And uh, that will really, really help you go through the right. difficult wor- winter we're heading. Okay, speaking to Federal Economic Development Minister Melanie Jolie about the fiscal update that was unveiled by the Trudeau government on Monday. When we take a look at this deficit figure, which is just an astonishing number, 381 billion dollar deficit this is the largest deficit as a share of gdp in the g20 that's like ten thousand dollars in deficit for for every canadian uh is that sustainable like how can you def- how do, what would you say about the, the the scale of that deficit it seems like we're spending the spending going on is extraordinary like we're spending more than twice as much as we're taking in so there's over 600 billion dollars in spending to uh, compared to 250 billion dollars in revenue is that how is that sustainable well listen mike we all started 2020 not thinking that we would have to deal with a pandemic and economic crisis so this was not part of our 
you know, uh, New Year wishes when we started the year. Uh, but we had to do what we had to do. We had to be there for people. Then we had to be there for businesses. And that's how we will prevent economic scarring. Now, we are not the only one in this boat. Lots of countries, all the countries in the world are in the same situation. And we still have the best ratio net to you know, net debt to GDP ratio in, in the G7. So uh, when we compare ourselves, we know that uh, we've been good in terms of the numbers of jobs that we've been able to recover. Uh, you've heard the finance minister. We lost uh, one million jobs since the beginning of the pandemic. We've been able uh, to recover. Uh, right. no, sorry, we, we, we lost way more than one million jobs. We lost many jobs. We've been able to recover 80% of all these jobs. And there's still one million jobs that need to be recovered. And so that's our economy, your fiscal guardrail. That's exactly what we will be working on, making sure that we do the right thing to prevent economic scarring and at the same time that people can have access to right. good paying Okay. Jobs. Okay. Speaking of the, the recovery and the jobs coming back, which is really good to see, we're actually seeing some good economic growth in the country as the economy recovers. I think like the third quarter was something like 40% growth. So I'm just wondering, given the fact that the economy does seem to be recovering, why would the federal government continue to spend so much money after the economy is, or after the pandemic is over? Like the, the fiscal plan announced on Monday would pump another $100 billion into the economy after the pandemic is over. Like why, if the economy is growing and the vaccine is coming in the, in the new year, why not give the economy a chance to continue to recover and try to get on, on uh, get back on a path to some sort of balance instead of keeping keep on spending. Well, because we have to be competitive, and we have other economies, other countries in the world that are uh, really investing in a stimulus. Uh, they, for example, Australia is investing three point seven percent of its GDP. We will be investing, like we said, between three and four percent of our GDP. Uh, that equals, like you were saying, between seventy and a hundred billion dollars. And with these investments, we'll be able to support our economy, make sure people have good jobs, and also we will be able to compete with other uh, countries which will be making these investments. Of course, uh, we know that this is something we have to do. This is not something we plan to do at the beginning of the year, but I think that we were in a good fiscal position before the pandemic, and we're still, when we compare ourselves to all the G7 uh, countries, we're still in the best position uh, in terms of okay. how we're dealing with our economy. All right. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you, Mike, and have a great day. All right. Welcome back as we continue talking about the federal fiscal update that came down on Monday from Federal Finance Minister Christian Freeland. Man, that is a huge deficit, $381 billion deficit. Uh, the government says uh, they're going to keep on spending here even when the pandemic is over. You heard my conversation there with the Federal Minister of Economic Development, Melanie Jolie. She said basically, they're, they got to do what they got to do. Every country in the world is in the same boat here trying to get through this thing you got to keep on spending. Let's get the opposition side of it now. My guest is Pierre Poliev, the conservative finance critic. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on. Mr. Poliev. 
Great to be with you. Hi, th- thank you for being here once again. Uh, I spoke to Melanie Jolie, the Minister of Economic Development. We talked about the huge deficit. We talked about the big spending plans going forward. And basically the bottom line for her was, you got to do what you got to do. We got to spend our way out of this thing. But your thoughts? Well, we have the biggest deficit in the G20 by far. So for her to suggest that we're just doing what everyone else is doing is patently false. In fact, the majority of countries in the OECD have deficits that are roughly half the size of ours as a share of their size of the economy. We have uh, a deficit that is uh, almost 20% of our entire economy. Uh, That is newly added debt uh, to our national credit card. We have never had a deficit this big outside of the Second World War. Uh, Even in the First World War, the Great Depression, the Great Global Recession, our deficit as a share of GDP was not even a fraction of of what it is now. Uh, And uh, as a result, our debt is now over a trillion dollars, and we are vulnerable to interest rate hikes, which will uh, take a massive chunk out of uh, future federal budgets, and that's money that won't be able to go to health care or protecting our borders or other essentials for which Canadians pay taxes. Right. It's interesting how we can sort of slice and dice the numbers on this stuff because, you know, I take your point about you said it's the worst deficit we see in the G20 or the biggest one. She just told me that if you take a look at it from another angle, debt to GDP ratio, right. <laughs> which I think is well, around that's pretty 56%. simple. Justin Trudeau inherited the best balance sheet in the world from Stephen Harper. The debt okay. is the historically accumulated amount of prior deficits, and because right. Harper and, in fairness, earlier liberal governments uh, were responsible with money, uh, we had the best balance sheet in the world. That's nothing to do with Justin Trudeau. Uh, that's that's just the balance sheet he inherited. It's like the rich kid you see bumming around on in Nice, um, smoking dope and living the life. And he says, "Hey, why? Why should I worry about money? I've got all this money, I have this cash in the bank." Well, yeah, you inherited it from your parents. <laughs> it's not through any genius that you're showing uh, while you're uh, sitting around uh, on the Mediterranean. Um, so uh, the government should not be bragging about what previous governments have done. Uh, what, in fact, they're doing is they're blowing that that uh, inheritance. They're blowing it uh, at a record rate. In fact, uh, in one year, we've gone from having a, an ultra-low 30% debt-to-GDP ratio to uh, what will be roughly 55% debt-to-GDP right. ratio by, right. by next year. But so she we're now says, within but she striking that, distance of, yeah, but of, she of says, crisis-level debts. Yeah, but she says that that debt-to-GDP ratio, even though it's gone up, as he just described, she said if you compare that to other G7 countries, we're actually in pretty good shape, like compared to other G7. Okay, so the, the only reason that, that is partially true is because we have uh, a massive fund uh, in the CPP uh, that's worth a half a trillion dollars, and that's deducted from Canada's net debt. But where we are much uh, worse off is in the total debt our economy bears as a share of our economy. If you add private debt with public debt, that is our consumers, our businesses, and our governments, we have a debt-to-GDP ratio of almost 400%. That is the second highest in the G7 behind only Japan. It is far and away the most debt our economy has ever shouldered since we started keeping records. It is far worse than our competitors. All of that debt makes us susceptible to interest rate hikes, which will inevitably come in the medium term. 
Okay, speaking to conservative finance critic Pierre Poliev, let's talk a little bit about this spending plan going forward, even when the pandemic is over. So the the fiscal update on Monday uh, had a plan there for a hundred billion dollars. A lot of it doesn't seem to be committed. I don't know where they're what they're going to spend all this money on over three years, but that's a lot of money to spend over three years. Another hundred billion. What do you think about that? Because you know the economy seems to be coming back quite pretty kind of well i mean we're, we've recovered a lot of jobs growth in the third quarter was was pretty darn strong do you think it makes sense to just keep your foot on the gas and just keep on spending even when the pandemic is over no the temporary spending was supposed to be temporary yeah. the covid yeah. spending was supposed to be for covid but we're supposedly going to all have vaccines by next september so why would we need to then pile on another hundred billion dollars to our national credit card uh, to, to, to spend further. Uh, these were supposed to be one-time spending measures to get Canadians through the lockdown. Everyone supported that because it's only fair that you replace the incomes of businesses and workers that governments had planned, had banned from working. And, but, but when that's over, uh, we need to bring our finances back in order or else we risk uh, heading towards a debt crisis. Okay, so at the end of the day, are you saying that the government is basically overcompensated here? They have spent too much, the deficit's too big, they shouldn't be spending all this money after the pandemic is over. So the Conservatives would be spending less, I presume, right? So what would you have not spent? Like, what would you cut? Well, we we did support the three main pillars of the COVID response, which were the CERB benefit, the wage subsidy and the small business SIBA loans, but those only accounted for about 175 billion of the 380 billion dollar deficit. The remainder, I believe, has just been untar- uh, poorly targeted, uh, spraying cash in, in all directions, uh, and uh, that was unnecessary. It did not that additional spending above and beyond the CERB wage subsidy and business loans uh, did not reach Canadians. We don't actually know where most of it went, and that's why we're asking the Auditor General to do a full examination and find out. Just to put it into perspective for your listeners, the deficit being $380 billion is equal almost exactly to $10,000 per man, woman, and child in Canada. Because we have 38 million people for a $380 billion deficit. That's $40,000 for the average family of four. Do you know a single family of four that has gotten $40,000 of benefits from this government since March? I don't. So where did well, all the money well, go? Well, a lot of the money, we just only have a minute left, sadly, but a lot of that money would not have been directly targeted individu- individuals. I mean, some of it was for the CERB, for example, but a lot of it, a lot of it was like stimulus spending or help, or help to get businesses through. So it wouldn't necessarily go th- into the pocket of an individual family, though, would it? Well, it should have. Left. The business, the, the business uh, assistance was primarily delivered through the wage subsidy, which should yeah. go into the pockets of workers. Yeah. $40,000? I don't know anybody who can say their family has got forty grand, yeah. uh, And that's exactly why we need uh, the Auditor General to find out where all this money went. Why is it that okay. we've had such bad results? We're, getting, we're the latest to get uh, new uh, rapid testing, the latest to get vaccines. We have the okay. second highest unemployment rate in the G7, and yet we paid the biggest bill. Why is it Thanks that we paid on. the most to get the least? Pierre Proliev, thanks for coming on today. Great to be with you.
All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about an investigation underway now into alleged improper spending at the Provincial Health Services Authority. This is a large centralized branch of the Provincial Health Ministry. They coordinate health services around the province, now subject to a spending review, according to a report from CBC News. And I give a tip of the hat to the rep- their reporter, Eric Rankin. There is now an investigation into alleged improper spending at this health authority. This is, un- this is incredible. Listen to this. S- including squandering $7 million on the purchase of unusable face masks from China. Hundreds of thousands of dollars on unnecessary renovations to its executive offices and tens of thousands of dollars on high-end catered meals for executives and their staff. Are you kidding me? The, the, the catered meals, this is the one that really jumped out at me. The whistleblowers here are saying that they observed breakfast and lunch being brought in for 18 executives and their assistants who were working virtually every day until about May. The meals included, the breakfast included avocado toast with lemon ricotta berry crepes. And the lunches featured steak and salmon niçois salads and sparkling water. Really? The Provincial Health Ministry has talked talk to Adrian Dix's office, the BC Health Minister, who confirms that a review is underway. Uh, Dix says here in a written statement released yesterday that public confidence in the health system is essential, including ensuring that the cost to taxpayers is reasonable, justified, and transparent. The chair of the board of this health authority has now been directed to provide information about this spending, and then the deputy minister of health We'll be conducting a review. Okay, let's talk about this now with my guest, Renee Merrifield. She is the Liberal MLA for Kelowna Mission. She's the Liberal Health Critic. I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Hi, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it a lot. What jumps out at you in this story? What are your concerns? Well, when I when the headline first hit, I uh, I immediately went to, oh, no. Yeah. As we are all... At being asked to sacrifice as we are all being asked to do things that we, you know, we haven't normally done as we are all taking it on the chin, the restaurateur that doesn't know if they're going to make it through the winter or the, the family that doesn't know if they're going to be together for the first time in history. You know, the, the parent who is at home because their kids were exposed at school at a time when British Columbians are not just struggling, but sacrificing this like a spending crisis are you kidding me um it was ridiculous it's ridiculous and it's just wrong okay some of these uh, spending irregularities allegedly are are to me are kind of disturbing like especially on useless face masks brought in from china so you have the health authority here is acknowledging that they basically wrote off 6.7 million dollars in costs on face masks that were brought in from China that were deemed to be problematic, in their words, and unusable 
in the health sector. These were, it looks like it was maybe N95 masks or what they thought were N95 masks, but maybe they were fakes or counterfeits. Do you have any, do you have any specific concerns about that? I mean, should the, you know, should government, should a big authority like this have a, have a better handle on making sure that the, the personal protective equipment they're buying is actually legit and real? Absolutely. And whether it's, you know, the private sector, government, nonprofits, etc., you run it in a way that's fiscally prudent. You don't pay for things that are done incorrectly or that are delivered that are substandard. And the federal government showed us the way on that one. You know, they, they got substandard and they said, we're not paying for these. Why did we pay for them? Now, let me take it to the next level. If you have, let's say, put down a deposit, and all of a sudden you're stuck with these masks. What can you do with them? Well, if they're not good for one purpose, perhaps you can resell them for another and actually get the taxpayers' dollars back. Uh, why these, these were just written off, I have a no idea why. And, uh, and honestly, we need to do a thorough review to figure out what's going on there. Okay, there's a review into that. There's also a review into money spent on office, executive office renovations at this health authorities head office and then you got these meals which i just find extraordinary like the to hear that meals are being brought in with steak and uh, uh, lemon ricotta berry crepes and salmon niçoise salads i mean this is unbelievable uh, the story <laughs> estimating that the cost to taxpayers between 30 and 40 thousand dollars for executive catered catered meals so there's an investigation going on and one of the one of the people at the center of this is the chair of the board of the health authority involved here do you think that perhaps there should be a more um, independent investigation going on into this, like, say, maybe by the Auditor General? Well, I, you know, I won't say Auditor General, but I do think independent. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, that's like asking the person caught with their head in the cookie jar why they did it. You know, um, it's, it's a, it, you're just too close to the, to the aspects to actually do a, that thorough investigation. And really, you know, tone is set from the top. And yeah. I, I, you know, I think that we we need to do a better look at, at really what's going on there. And I'm going to correct you on one thing. I actually um, did a little bit of investigation, and it was renovations on renovations. So yes. there had been a renovation done, and it was it was actually more renovations. And you know about the food when you were describing that in your intro, I I was listening, going, I don't eat that well. Yeah. <laughs> like that's incredible. And at a time when you know organizations like like the food banks or Breakfast Club of Canada are seeing an increased demand of 35% of the use of their, of their services. We're, we're spending tens of thousands of dollars on crepes. Like yeah. that, that just doesn't make any sense. Speaking to Liberal health critic Renee Merrifield, she's the Liberal MLA for Kelowna Mission, and we're talking about uh, alleged spending, inappropriate spending at the Provincial Health Services Authority. There's a review going on there now. Would you call on the government for for complete transparency here because one of the things that when we see this type of these type of spending decisions being made at the very top of a large organization here with a CEO making over $300,000 a year that's something that can really i think sap the morale of people who are working hard especially during a public health emergency like this pandemic to see this type of thing going on i think what you need there is you need full disclosure and transparency so we can get to the bottom of what exactly happened here would you call for uh, full unredacted release of any reports that are generated out of this so the public can, knows what's going on with their money? 
Absolutely, Mike. You're 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 bang yeah. on. This is not a time for us to be, you know, to be given documents that have uh, have been redacted to the point where we can't even figure out what's you know what's what's going on. This is a point where we 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 dive deep and we figure out exactly why decisions like this were being made at a time when we we were given directives. There was you know there were directives that said no discretionary government spending. You know we are all sacrificing right. and and you. Mentioned mentioned uh, you mentioned uh, public confidence i think this goes way deeper than public confidence i think this is about patient care you know i think this is about asking tough questions and saying to government hey we need to know what's going on and and we need we're calling you to account as a leader you know it's uh, is it your fault well it's definitely your responsibility so why you know why are decisions like this being made Okay, I hope we get to the bottom of this and that the public gets some answers. And I think full transparency, I agree with you, is certainly required in a situation like this. So we continue to watch this one very closely. Thanks a lot for your time today. Thank you for having me. All right, welcome back to the show with high numbers of COVID-19 during the second wave of the pandemic in British Columbia for parents who have kids in public schools. I'm one of them. There's a lot of concern about COVID exposures in the public school system. A lot of parents looking for solid information about COVID infections in schools. Now, the BC Ministry of Health says it is unable to provide a daily total for the number of in-school exposures to COVID-19. Why not? Why not? Like a lot of parents are actually going online to find this information on a very popular Facebook website, the BC School COVID Tracker that tracks school exposures, now listing over a 1,000. That Facebook page has over 37,000 followers, and uh, I'm one of them. I check out that page just because I got kids in the public school system. Let's check in with Kathy Marlis now. She's the creator and the administrator of the BC School COVID Tracker Facebook page. Hi, Kathy. Hey, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on, and congratulations on the site. I think you're really doing a, a lot of good work, and you're providing a lot of solid information that parents are looking for, and, and I check out I check out the Facebook page quite often. Let me ask you about uh, what, what parents or people in general will see when they go to your COVID tracker Facebook page. What kind of information do you track there? Uh, well, we're tracking exposures in schools from K to 12. We also get uh, letters or correspondence about daycares. We don't track them by number, but we will post you know, anything that comes our way that is involving children and COVID that we feel is relevant and would help keep people safe. Right. And is your source for exposures, are they largely from the government, school districts? Like, where do you get your information from? Um, we get it all from, well, parents, the district letters uh, that, that parents receive, they'll forward to us. So every case that we document has the letters backing them up from either public health or, you know, the school districts themselves. Right. Um, so they're, they're all official. Yeah, right. So it's not like you're just reporting like rumors or anything like that. You, you, you've always got a source for the information you're posting, right? Yeah, that's one of our, our main rules and mandates that it has to be valid. Um, you know, as a parent myself, I, I want to know the information is, is real and valid and I can make informed decisions. I certainly don't want people coming back to me going, well, I kept my kid home because you said there was an issue, but there really wasn't. I mean, we want people to make uh, decisions that make sense 
with real information. Yeah, that's one of the things I really like about the COVID tracker p- page that you're running uh, because the information is backed up and sourced there when you, when you check it out. Let me play this here for you, Kathy. This is uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry, of course, the provincial health officer, and she was, ta- she was asked about online groups that are tracking COVID exposures in schools, and here's what she had to say. In terms of um, the online COVID trackers, I know that uh, those are... Um, um, on, I have not actually seen any of them, but I can tell you that we are very uh, diligent about posting exposures. Okay, so she says she hasn't actually looked at the COVID tracker that you run there. I mean, she's a pretty busy person, so I right. don't know, maybe, maybe that's understandable. But what is the difference between like what you guys are doing there on the Facebook page and the information that's coming from other sources like government or health authorities? Um, I think the difference is the, the timeliness of the information. I mean, yeah. we're getting we're getting it as, as much real time as humanly possible. So as the letters get received, I mean, we're trying to get the information out there where we're seeing a tremendous lag in time between correspondence to the families and when the actual exposure event occurred. And that's very problematic and troublesome for many parents and teachers. We hear it all the time that they're like, why, why is there such a huge time discrepancy and yeah. I wish I could answer that question whether they're backlogged I mean I I don't I can speculate a million reasons why but the, the fact remains that it is a problem and you know people are saying well if I had known earlier I mean it, it's too late now and that is the difference between our page and theirs is that they can I mean unfortunately the lag time still remains even though we posted it still shows that oh no the exposure happened 10 days ago so we can't solve that problem with our page that comes from them. It has to stem from how they get the information rolled out as quickly as possible. Right, right. So that's a huge issue. Speaking to Kathy Marla, she's the creator and administrator of the BC School COVID Tracker Facebook page. When you go on the page now, Kathy, I believe it's what it's over a thousand school exposures now listed on the page. Is that correct? There's. Uh, I'd have to pull it up, but I think we're we're well over a thousand now. Yeah. yeah. And how do you, what is that? How do you define that? Yeah, it is a lot for sure. And how do you define that like an exposure? What is a COVID exposure in a school? So in in terms of how we relate to it is if a person tests positive and is present in the school, infectious, and you get a letter saying there has been an exposure at our school on these dates. So your child could have been exposed to that positive individual is an exposure event. Right. So there have been well over a thousand incidents where someone in the school community was present in the building, whether it's a teacher, staff, they don't, they don't always share that information, um, but it did impact potentially your child in, you know, catching the virus. Right. So it doesn't so, necessarily mean, so an exposure event doesn't necessarily mean that, that the, the virus was transmitted to someone else in the school. It just means that someone who had tested positive was in the school. That is right. correct. Yeah. However, you know, we're, we are seeing, see, that's the, that's the muddy area um, where there's a lot of people going, well, it's not transmitting in schools. We hear this all the time from Dr. Bonnie Henry is transmission in schools are low. Um, we would like to say that we're seeing that transmissions aren't really low. Um, it is happening. And we can see it in numerous schools where they've chosen to, to close the school itself. I mean, there's a lot of cases that aren't being reported and documented, so we can't put on our list until we have the documentation. But 
the truth is, is that there are cases where kids are and students and staff are getting it transmitted to each other, but they're not reporting those things. Wow. Wow. Yeah, right. And this is why parents need the information. And as you stressed earlier, this is in order for parents to have the information themselves so they can make an informed decision about about their own kids, their own family. And I think that's really important. Just in the, in the minute or so we got left here, Kathy, what would you like to see change here in terms of what the, the authorities are disclosing? In, in a perfect world for you, what would you like to see happening right now in terms of the disclosure of information to parents? I, I would definitely like to see them reporting these incidents in a much faster way. Yeah. I think that the knowledge is power, and the sooner we can get this information, the sooner we can make decisions. Every Everybody has a different story. Bonnie Henry says this all the time. You know, we don't know everyone's stories or situations. Some people are not necessarily high risk, who don't feel um, that their situation requires them to keep their child home. Regardless, there's some that really need that information. They have, even my household's high risk. We've had five exposures in our school in less than two weeks. So my daughter is home right now. Because there's asymptomatic carriers with every exposure notice. There's the potential of children who are asymptomatic. I've heard about this hundreds of times. It's, it's quite um, draining emotionally to know that this is happening. So I think they need to speed up the process in letting people know. And I think letting people know where in the school they don't have to you know, release private information. I'm doing it without releasing private information. I'm giving people enough information to be able to make choices. And I think they need to make schools safer. Teachers and parents right. do not feel safe. Kids okay. do not feel safe. I agree with you. Thank you for the work you're doing on the COVID tracker page. I think you're doing a terrific job and I appreciate your time today. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike.